0: morning. Before I uh, read the scripture for this morning, I just wanted to acknowledge the five people that were up playing this morning. Um, I recognize that we are the beneficiaries of decades and decades of practice on their part, and uh, it is a gift. So thank you, Allison and the dudes. That was just great the dudes anyways scripture reading Uh, this morning craig will be speaking to us from the first chapter of ephesians verses one through three paul an apostle of christ jesus by the will of god to the saints who are in ephesus and are faithful in christ jesus grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The word of the Lord. So at
1: this point, I'm going to invite Craig up. Uh, Craig is joining us this morning. He's a, a pastor at Tenth Church in Vancouver um and it's craig uh i asked right. him before the service and i'd forgotten already but pageans it's, right, yeah. it's craig Pagens. uh i'm just going to pray for you craig this morning as we uh That's begin wonderful. so Thanks. lord we thank you for blessing us with craig's presence here this morning lord i pray that you would bless him as he speaks to us uh, let his uh let his words be of you let it be the spirit speaking through him let the study that he has put into this morning be beneficial. Let him speak your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks.
2: Well, good morning. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And, and thank you for that brilliant reading of Ephesians. Thank you. This last summer, my wife and I had the opportunity to travel to the South Pacific to celebrate the end of two long graduate degrees and celebrate the beginning of a new season for both of us. And we were both really excited. This was a a once-in-a-lifetime trip for both of us. And something that I had wanted to do my whole life, but especially while we were on this trip, was to swim with rays. If you've never had the opportunity to see rays, but you've only heard about them maybe on TV or on the internet, You might think that these are horrible, dangerous creatures with a big barb on the back of their tail who can kill you. And it's true, they can be dangerous, but they're generally really harmless, safe creatures to be around. So we went to the South Pacific, and about partway through our trip, I had the opportunity to swim with rays in their natural habitat. And it was a full-day excursion out the whole day in the sun. And partway through the trip, we stopped in a channel uh, along the side of the island. And we put down anchor, and we were told, hop out. This is the natural habitat for the eagle ray. And if you've ever heard of a stingray before, a stingray just has one barb on the back of their tail with which, if they feel like they're being, they could be harmed or in some very rare circumstances, they may attack you with it. Well, an eagle ray has five barbs on the back of their tail. So they're five times as dangerous as a stingray. So when we were told that we'd come to the natural habitat of the eagle ray, I got pretty nervous. But we were assured that we would be floating along the top of the channel and that the eagle rays generally stay at the bottom and we wouldn't have to worry about them at all. So I reluctantly jumped in and started floating down the channel. And sure enough, within a minute or two, I saw these beautiful creatures. You can see them a little bit in the bottom right of the photo there. Ignore the blisteringly white figure on the left. (laughs) But these are eagle rays in the back corner, and they're some of the most beautiful creatures you'll ever see in your whole life. They look like majestic flying seabirds, flying all in unison down the channel towards me. And I was actually so surprised, they were so beautiful, I, I didn't know what to do at first. But I quickly regained my motions and wanted to take pictures of these beautiful creatures knowing that I'd probably never have the chance to travel to the South Pacific again and see them. And about a few minutes later, as these beautiful eagle rays approached me, three of them broke off and began to do their own thing over to my left. And I didn't really care. I wanted to get beautiful photos and take in the rest of the flock of eagle rays or pod of eagle rays. And taking photos, really enamored by their beauty, when I looked back and I noticed some of the rest of our group starting to swim back towards the boat. And my wife motioning to me to look to my left. And with a lot of nervousness, I looked over to my left and saw the three eagle rays that had broken off from the rest of the group coming directly towards me. Now, do you remember when I mentioned that there's eagle rays are typically pretty harmless, and will only attack in very few, very rare circumstances. Well, it just so happens that eagle rays that are hoping to mate is one of those rare circumstances. And the eagle ray that was in the front of the group was a female. And the two that were following behind were very young, eager, male eagle rays, looking to vie for her attention and her affection. And she was coming straight towards me. So having realized the reality of the situation around me, I quickly turned and swam as quickly as I could back to the boat, hoping to outswim these three eagle rays. And as I approached the boat just before I got in, I looked back, saw that they had luckily turned away and gone in a different direction, and that I was okay. But having not seen the reality of my situation, having my wife not blessed me by pointing out the reality of my situation, I would have probably been in a lot of trouble and possibly could, may not be here today. The first three verses from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul's hoping to open our eyes to a true reading, a true vision of the reality around us. He's hoping us to see with lenses that open us up to the reality of the world. And Paul summarizes this true vision of reality with one word, blessed. So, Anne, you've read so beautifully this scripture, but we're going to read it one more time together. Um, I'll read it, and if you can follow along, just to remind us of um, this this scripture. So this is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your word that has spoken to us and that is speaking to us. Thank you for the ways that you have also spoken to me and prepared me for this message. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to a true reading, a true vision of, of reality around us. And that we would learn to be a people who see and live in light of that true reality. So Lord, may these words speak to all of us today. Pray in your name, amen. Paul spoke these words to the church in Ephesus around the year 62 AD. And Paul knew the church really well. He had lived, he'd ministered, he'd taught, this church for over four years while living in the city of Ephesus. And initially, he was speaking primarily to a Jewish audience, teaching from synagogue to synagogue. But eventually, he received so much resistance in the city of Ephesus, teaching in these synagogues, that he was forced to stop his teaching in the synagogues and go and teach somewhere called the Hall of Tyrannus, which sounds a little bit like a Star Wars name rather than a biblical character. But Tyrannus was a Greek-speaking philosopher living in the city of Ephesus. And so he goes from speaking primarily to a Jewish audience in synagogues to a Greek-speaking audience in the hall, the lecture hall, of a philosopher. And so unlike many of the churches that Paul preached at, taught at, lived at, this church gained a little bit more of a Greek-speaking flavor. A lot of the churches were primarily Jewish, whereas the church in Ephesus was primarily Greek by background. And Ephesus was a famous city in, uh, in the empire, in the Roman Empire. It was famous because it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. And people would travel all throughout the empire to come and live there. And they'd come to travel there for a number of reasons. But initially people came to travel there because after it had been wiped out by the Romans and then rebuilt, Romans traveled there in order to seek their own wealth. You see, Ephesus was located along the western border of the province of Asia. And it was a very commercially strategic location because if you wanted to trade anything throughout the empire, you'd have to go through the city of Ephesus. So... If you wanted to trade something coming from Rome, you wanted to take it to India or China or northern Asia, you had to go through Ephesus. If you wanted to bring silks from China and bring it back to the capital of the empire, Rome, you had to go through Ephesus. And if you wanted to bring anything by land coming from the area of Asia, so north of modern-day Turkey, three of the major roads, of the biggest roads in Asia, converged upon the city of Ephesus. This was a major strategic point for commerce in the empire. So if you were looking to become a wealth, a wealthy young businessman or businesswoman, you would travel to the city of Ephesus. And so the people of Ephesus cared very much about how much they made, about their financial well-being, their family's financial well-being. And they were likely one of the wealthier churches uh, that Paul had ever come into contact with. It was not only an important city because of its commercial significance, but because of its religious significance. See, people would come throughout the empire, and when they would travel to Ephesus, they would bring with them their language, their culture, their religions. But within Ephesus, there was primarily one major religion, and that was known as the cult of Diana or the cult of Artemis. And Diana was the goddess of health. And so if you were sick or you wanted long life or healing, you would come to the temple and you would pray to the goddess Diana. And so people in Ephesus cared very much about their health and their well-being. And they were trained over many years, especially those who grew up going to the temple, to care with their, about their health. And if you wanted to gain an idea of how important a, a god or a goddess was in the ancient empire, you would look at the size of their temple. In the ancient world, much like Texas, bigger is better. And so the Parthenon, has anybody ever been to Rome before? Have you been to the Parthenon? Okay, some of you have been to the Parthenon. It's a great big building, isn't it? Well, the Parthenon was one of the homes of one of the Roman gods, and the Temple of Diana was four times larger than the Parthenon. To give you an idea how big it is, it's about the same size as a modern day American football field. So it was a huge building, and it was adorned with jewels and gold, overlaid with silver. It was amazing. It was considered and called the Jewel of Asia. So people worshiping at the Temple of Diana would have thought wow, this is a god who is big, is powerful. And if I care about my my health, about my well-being, I should come and worship here. So, this was a church that was primarily Gentile, that was primarily Greek-speaking, who grew up caring very much about how much money they made, about how they looked, and about their own health. It was a multicultural city with people from different backgrounds, speaking different languages, bringing different cultures. Sounds actually a lot like another city I know, doesn't it? Like Vancouver and the North Shore. A city that is also a gateway to the rest of the world, bringing people from all around the world to it. A city that is comparatively very wealthy and who cares very much about their health, their Lululemon pants, and doing yoga. This is a lot like our own city. So let's contrast the city of Ephesus and even the church of Ephesus with Paul. Paul. Paul, at the time of writing this letter, was writing from Rome under house arrest. He's writing under house arrest, which means that he's chained day and night to a Roman guard. And he's not chained just to any Roman guard. He's chained to the Praetorian Guard. These were the ancient equivalent of the U.S. Navy SEALs. These were the best of the best in the Roman Legion. And for Paul to be... Chains, literally with metal chains around his hands and his feet, chained to a praetorian guard, he likely knew he wouldn't be going anywhere, anytime soon. And yet, when he writes his letter to the church in Ephesus, he doesn't begin it by saying, my life is so difficult, look at how poor my circumstances are. He likely, in fact, would have been poor in, in money, uh, if, he, if he had brought any along the way, uh, when he had left initially, he likely wouldn't have anything by the time he got to Rome, and he'd probably be in bad health as well, being stuck under house arrest with very little exercise, not seeing the light, and also not eating well. So he had every reason to open up this letter to the Ephesians, to one of the churches who are the richest, healthiest church, by complaining and showing them about the poverty of his own situation. But instead, Paul sees his reality through a completely different lens. One that he summarizes as blessed. And he starts the letter by blessing God the Father and by blessing this church. Now, I think many of us have an idea what it means to bless God the Father, whether you're a part of a religious community or not. My wife had the opportunity to travel to the Antarctic a number of years ago. And while traveling to the Antarctic... She was with a number of scientists, teachers, professors, and they were taking scientific measurements of the Antarctic and taking photographs, beautiful photographs, as much of the wildlife. And while she was there, they decided one day to go hiking up to the top of a mountain to get a view of the area. And so they hiked up, and all along the way, they were laughing and joking, telling stories. But when they got to the top, they saw this. Or something similar to this. A beautiful view of the mountain range and the area surrounding where they were. And when they got to the top, they simply stopped, went silent, and sat there for a few minutes, just taking in the view. And then one of the people who Sabin was, my wife Sabin, was traveling with, said something they emerged from the feelings that were coming up deep within him. He said, seeing a a view, such beauty as this, I can see how a God could exist. And he wasn't somebody who believed in God at all himself. But that for all of them, there was this swelling inside of them of thanksgiving for the beauty that they were able to see, such that they were longing to give thanks to something or to someone and even someone who didn't have a religious faith, didn't belong to a religious community himself, longed to give something to someone else. To bless in the Greek most literally refers to, to kneeling, to the physical posture of kneeling. In the ancient world, you would kneel when you are offering a gift to somebody else. So for example, if I wanted to give a gift to Anne and for her beautiful reading today. I would kneel in front of her, and my wife has said I only kneel in front of one woman once, so I'll I'll do a part partial kneel. But I would kneel in front of Anne and I would bow my head and I would give thanks to her by giving her a gift. It's just a prop, Anne, but you can still take it if you want. <laughs> There's nothing inside but some paper, but <laughs> you can keep it if you like. <laughs> but it really was a beautiful reading. Thank you, Anne, very much. So to bless someone is to kneel for the purpose of giving a gift. That when we bless God, we give him the gift of something, whether it's our thanksgiving or even in the ancient world, it could have been the gift of a sacrifice or incense, to offer somebody something out of gratitude that has swelled up with inside us or to offer a gift to somebody out of recognition of who they are. In the ancient world, we can see how someone would want to give thanks to God. We even want to give thanks to God, seeing the beauty of the mountains. In Vancouver, we see the beauty of the mountains around us and the ocean. We long to give thanks. But what does it mean for God to bless us? Well, today we're going to look at two ways that Paul says that God blesses us, both of which are talked about in Ephesians 1, verse 3. He says that we are blessed first in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing. And two, he says that we are blessed in Christ. So first, let's look at being blessed in the heavenlies. What do you think about when you hear the word heaven? When I was a new Christian, or when I was exploring Christianity, coming to church for the first few times, whenever I heard a sermon that talked about heaven, I would immediately think of some far-off, distant, Ethereal place filled with clouds, people singing, and babies playing harps. And to be honest, this was not appealing at all to me. I thought this, be- this world was way more beautiful and way more interesting than going to a place so far off filled with clouds and musical babies. It's not at all something I was interested in. But when the biblical authors and when Paul is talking about heaven, or the heavenlies, or the heavenly places, depending how you translate it. He's not talking about some far-off distant place, but instead he's talking about the unseen world that surrounds us every moment of every day. And this is hard for many of us moderns to understand and to wrap our mind around, but this would have been very easy to understand for an ancient writer, an ancient believer. You see, for us, we see within the three dimensions of our physical world around us and the fourth dimension of time. But if we can't see it, touch it, taste it, it's hard to believe it's actually there. But for Paul and an ancient reader, they saw with a whole other dimension, with a whole other sphere, that there was, on top of the three dimensions that we can touch and see and smell, the fourth dimension of time, that there was a whole other dimension of reality that could pop in and out of our own dimension at any time. This is why, for example, angels will come into the narrative, some points just vanishing in and out of the story. This is why Jesus is able to ask Thomas to touch the wounds in his hands and then able to walk through a wall. That there is another permeable, unseen reality that coexists around us at every moment of every day. And as I said, this is sometimes difficult for many of us to understand or even grasp our head around. But the story I'm going to tell you is a story that um, my pastor, Ken Shigematsu, tells at 10th Avenue Church um, every now and then during his sermons. So when our senior pastor, Ken, was starting out at 10th Avenue, one of the congregants was a a member of the fire department. And one day he came in and told Ken, this last weekend we were called out to a building that had lit on fire and we put it out and when we entered the building we saw there were a number of papers and books and we began to go through them to see what kind of place this was that we've come to and they soon realized that the building that they'd been called to was a place of worship for satanists for people who belonged to to who worshiped satan and so they said as they got, went through the papers they were surprised that that this place actually existed, but then were alarmed when they saw another piece of paper that had on it written the names of 10 churches who they were actively praying against at, at, at each of their meetings. And he said that, he told Ken that the top of the list was 10th Avenue Church, which at the time was a very small, really tiny church within the city of Vancouver. It's just over 100 people. And that even though on the outside, Pastor Ken and many of the people in there felt like they were having a really small impact in the community and the world around them, that in fact they were having such a big big impact in another unseen area, a realm of reality that those people who were worshipping Satan were feeling opposed against to such an extent that this tiny little church would be at the top of their list of churches that they were praying against. And this can be the same same for us sometimes as well, that even though we feel like we can be having a very small impact in the visible world around us, that we can in fact be having a very big impact in the world that we can't see or that we may see at some time, at some later place. And so for Paul to be saying that we are blessed in the heavenlies, he's saying that we have received a gift from God in a realm, in a sphere That we can't always see at every time, but that exists around us at every moment, everywhere, regardless of whether we see it or not. But Paul goes on to say that we're blessed in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing. And with this, Paul really helps us to make sense of what it means to be blessed in that unknown, unseen sphere of reality. According to the vast consensus of biblical scholars... To receive every spiritual blessing, Paul is referring to the perfect blessing of the Holy Spirit. That what we have received from God is we have received the perfect gift of the Holy Spirit, which gives us a new status and new ability to affect the world, both the seen world that's good and surrounds us every moment of every day, and the unseen world that we may not be able to see, that we may not be able to touch but nevertheless exists around us every moment of every day. That when we pray, we may not feel like our prayers are being seen or heard or answered or had any impact at all. That they may in fact be having an impact somewhere else, in some other realm, in some other place that we cannot immediately see before us. And Paul goes on to say that we're not only blessed in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing, but he says that we are blessed in Christ. According to one theologian, being blessed in Christ is the greatest reality, the greatest truth that Scripture has to teach us. That's a pretty great claim. But what does he mean, what does Paul mean to say that we are in Christ? Well, to be in Christ, we have to go back about 4,000 years. Go back to a man named Abraham. And whenever you talk about blessing in the Old Testament, which we can also call the Hebrew Scriptures— the, nation, the notion of blessing is most closely tied to the figure of Abraham and his family, which becomes the nation of Israel. And for Abraham, God speaks this blessing over him in Genesis 12. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And God goes on from there to explain that this blessing, this gift that he wants to give to Abraham, his descendants, to his family, is primarily composed of two things. It's composed of the blessing of family, the gift of descendants, and the blessing of land, a place to settle down, to raise children, to live. But over throughout the Hebrew scriptures to our Old Testament, this blessing, this promise of God that is passed on from generation to generation to generation, it actually grows. It doesn't stay only just the blessing of descendants and land, but it becomes much bigger. And we see this in particular in the prophets, especially in the prophet Isaiah. And in the prophet Isaiah, God promises to send a Messiah, someone who will come who will save Israel, who will save the nation, the family, and their descendants, and who will come to restore God's perfect kingdom here and now, on this earth, as Jesus says, on earth as it is in heaven. And so when we are in Christ, when we give our life over to Christ, we are bound to the one who is himself the one who is sent to save us. And Jesus says, if Jesus compares this being in Christ. He uses another metaphor to try and help us to understand. What this looks like, because it can seem like a very abstract idea. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, Jesus Himself in John's Gospel uses the metaphor of grafting into, being grafted into a tree. So, for the last ten years, I've worked with the City of Vancouver, and I've had the opportunity to work with their urban tree program. And my first year working with the urban tree program, I had the opportunity to learn about grafting. Now, most of the trees in the city of Vancouver, I'm not sure sure about our North Shore, but in the city of Vancouver are actually grafted trees. That most of the trees that we have in there, at least the branches of the trees, that those trees wouldn't naturally be able to survive or would only be able to survive for a very few years in our very wet, humid, dark climate here in Vancouver. And so what they do, because there are many beautiful trees that couldn't naturally survive here in Vancouver, is they'll take the root and the trunk of a tree that's able to survive and flourish naturally in Vancouver and they'll chop off the branches from that tree and they'll make little slits in the top and they'll input branches from trees that they want to grow in the city. So for example, they might start with the base of a plum tree that's able typically to thrive very well in, in very wet environments and they'll put on it a branch of a cherry blossom. One that uh, a kind of tree that Vancouver is very well known for. And over time, this tree that has in itself uh, a cut and the branch that has been introduced, initially the branch won't be able to receive any of the life of the tree. That the only branches of the trees would be the natural branches that may have been left on the tree beforehand. But over time, this grafted branch and the trunk of the tree, they grow and heal together. And what happens is that over time, as they heal and bond and are grafted together, that actually the life of the roots and the trunk of the tree are able to be passed to this foreign branch that otherwise wouldn't be able to thrive, live in the city at all. What God is saying is that when we are grafted into Christ, that when the church of Ephesus, who is made up of people from all over the Roman Empire, from Rome itself so Greek-speaking Jews and people from all throughout the area of Asia speaking their own language, bringing their own customs, bringing their own cultures, that when we give our life to Jesus, that we are grafted into the branch that, sorry, we are grafted as branches into the trunk of the tree, that we are given a family, we are given promises, we are given a blessing that we otherwise had no right to on our own. This is a tree that you can find in New York City. The tree trunk itself is from a tree that's able to naturally survive the harsh climates of New York City. It's able to survive in blistering hot heat, as it exists in New York, and the freezing cold winters. But you can see there's something peculiar about the tree, and there's all these different colors on it. It's because this one tree has a hundred different types of fruit branches, grafted into it and in the summer these fruit branches many of which could never on their own survive the harsh summers and harsh winters of new york city they grow leaves and blossom and eventually grow a hundred different kinds of fruit and for the church in ephesus this is exactly what it's like to be grafted into christ That people who have gathered from all over the world with different cultures, different languages, different customs, different people, having been branched, having been grafted into one trunk, therefore are able to grow their own fruit, grow their own life. They're able to gain the life of the trunk. They are given a life and a promise that they otherwise had no right to on their own. That whereas the promise that God made to Abraham and his descendants In particular, the promise of a Messiah, the promise that one would come to save us and to restore God's kingdom here on earth in the here and now, not only applied to Abraham and his descendants, but now we were grafted into that promise ourselves, that we ourselves receive the gift of that life, those promises, those blessings, even though we had no right to them ourselves. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we have become a people who, when we give our life to Jesus, also allow him to take from us our sin. When he came 2,000 years ago, died on a Roman cross, dying for our sin and taking on himself the death that we deserved, that when we are grafted to Christ, we gain that same blessing that was initially intended for Abraham and his descendants. But we also gain the promise of being partners with God in that future kingdom. That as God told the nation of Israel that you will be a blessing to others. That you will come and help to bring God's kingdom here on earth. So we are invited to a whole new vocation. A vocation where we not only receive, but where we give back from the blessing that we have also received. And point to the great one who is the blesser, who is the giver of gifts. I've had the opportunity over the last week to see a little bit of this at work myself because this can happen in in big ways or in small ways. For the last two weeks, my wife and I have been woken up almost every single night between 3 to 6 a.m. to a very loud, very high-pitched noise. And the first few nights, I woke up and it sounded like it was coming from our neighbor's apartment, so I went over and knocked on her door to no answer. And again and again, no answer during night and day. And finally we reached out to our building and they managed to get in touch with with her. And eventually I was able to get in touch with her as well. And during our conversation I said, listen, just so you know, we don't want you to we don't want you to receive a warning, we don't want you to receive a penalty, we just want to build a relationship with you. And we understand that this might not be your fault. And we offered her as much grace and understanding and peace as we could. And for my wife and I, it just came naturally out of who we are and how we see the world. But for her, after I finished talking to her, she said, what on earth makes you respond like this to me? You have every right to get mad. I, I have noises coming from my apartment that have been waking you up every night. What on earth, what philosophy, what worldview makes you respond like this to me. I told her, well, I didn't expect this, but I'm I'm a Christian, my wife and our Christians, and I work at a church, I'm a Christian pastor in Vancouver. And this is how we see the world and we hope to offer you grace and to be to build a relationship with you as our neighbor um, and to bless you as we have been blessed. That for us, we had have been beginning to see the world through brand new lenses. And her response, and having followed up with her afterwards, showed us something really significant. It was very clear to her that our response didn't come from the prevailing worldview that surrounded us. It came from something or someone else. Which is why she asked, what on earth made you respond like this? Any other sane neighbor would be getting angry, writing warning letters, going to the strata or the board. But you came over to try and build a relationship with with us to offer us peace and grace. And she could see that this wasn't only coming from us, but it was coming from somewhere, something, from someone who was, in fact, the one giving us the blessing that we were trying to extend to her. Paul lives out of a completely renewed vision of reality, one that is summed up by the word blessed. And even though Paul is in literal chains, in poverty and in poor health, that he speaks, it overflows out of his mouth and through the whole letter of Ephesians, blessing, thanksgiving, praise, and grace. And so we too are invited to be a people who see the world through a renewed vision of blessing. To see the world through those lenses and to respond to others, allowing them to see the great gift giver who stands behind those blessings. So I'm going to give us a minute just to consider what is a way that you can live out of that blessing this week? What is some way that you can respond to the great news that God has blessed you? And then I'm going to close in a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are so good to us. And that when we give our lives to you, that we are grafted to you, something actually changes within us, within you, that there is a real change that happens. And that we in turn receive the promises, the gifts, the family that we were never intended to receive that we receive life with you, the forgiveness of our sins, the opportunity to partner with you in bringing the kingdom to this world and receive the gift of your Holy Spirit, allowing us to impact this tangible physical world around us and even have an impact with your spirit, even in ways that we cannot see, cannot smell, cannot touch. So Jesus, I pray that you would continue to open our eyes to a renewed vision of who we are, a people of blessing, and allow us to live from that position of blessing, blessing others and allowing them to see you, the great blesser, the great gift giver. We pray this in your name. Amen.
1: We'll move now into our time of communion, um, and this is just one of the many ways in which Christ has blessed us. Uh, the most significant blessing that He's poured out for us was His blood. So we remember that sacrifice He made. It says, And He, uh, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we think of this sacrifice that you made, and we are thankful for it. Help us to not take it for granted. Let us remember this amazing, immense sacrifice that you made for us. And as we partake of it this morning, Lord, we ask that you would remind us that we are of one body. We have been grafted into you. We are now one family through the sacrifice you have made for us. Lord, we thank you for that. Amen. Here at Sutherland, we always say that this is a table of inclusion, not exclusion. If you know Christ or would like to, you are welcome to participate. Ushers can come forward, please.